0: Hello, everybody, and welcome back to New Books in History. I'm Marshall Poe, your host. Each week, we pick a new history book that we find particularly interesting, and we interview the author of that book. This week, I'm very pleased to say we have Charles King on the show, and we'll be talking about his book, The Ghost of Freedom, A History of the Caucasus. There are two things you can say about the Caucasus. First is that they are very complicated. As you probably know, there are many different kinds of people that live there. There are the Azerbaijanis and the Georgians and the Armenians, and the Abhasians, and the Ossetians, and the Chechens, and the various folks who live in Dagestan, and the Circassians, and God knows what else. They practice many religions, they speak many languages. So all of this adds up to a considerable degree of complexity. The second thing we can say about the Caucasus is that they kind of punch above their weight in terms of importance. Since the Caucasus stand at the union of three early modern and modern empires, those being the Persian, the Russian, and the Turkish... They have always been an extremely important, a strategically important place, and they are today, uh, particularly as regards um, security issues that we're all interested in here in the United States and perhaps in the Western world. So it's with this background in mind that I can highly recommend to you this book by Charles King, The Ghost of Freedom. I had a terrific time talking to Charles today about the Caucasus. Nobody knows more about it than he. I hope that you enjoy the interview. Here it is. Hi, Charles. Hello. Uh, how are you today? I'm good. Thanks very much. You certainly sound. Thanks very s- for having me on the show. It's my pleasure. Um, how is the uh, weather? That you're in DC? Is that right?
1: Uh, that's right. I'm uh, here in D.C. in the Georgetown neighborhood. Uh-huh. It's uh, I think back up into the uh, into the 50s. You know, we're just digging out from, right. from this incredible snow dump, and there are still gigantic piles of snow all around the
0: place. Not not incredible by our measure here in Iowa. I should tell our listeners that we are lucky to have Charles King on the show, and he is not snowbound, uh, but he is very busy writing books. He's written a lot of books, and the most recent one, I think it's the most recent one. Is it the most recent one, Charles?
1: Uh, there's actually one <laughs> out now beyond it, but uh, but, anyway, but it's hold a on. political science book, so okay. it doesn't count.
0: All right. Well, anyway, today we're going to be talking about what I guess isn't his most recent book. It's called The Ghost of Freedom, and it's a, a history of the caucus region. Uh, for those of you who know, it's just called The Ghost of Freedom, a history of the caucus. And uh, as you know, if you listen to this show, I read these books, and this one is uh, terrific because it takes something which is really extraordinarily complex. Uh, it's... it's a it's, uh, It's pretty. It's pretty mind-bogglingly complicated. The caucus and um, Charles manages to tell, in a very eloquent way, a uh, a pretty, pretty compelling and easy to understand story about it. So it's a wonderful book in the sense that it reduces, uh, the natural complexity of the place, uh, to a level that uh, someone like me, who's not an expert on the caucus, I don't really know much about it, uh, can understand. Uh, Also, as you probably know, this is an incredibly important part of the world right now. It doesn't make the news very much, but uh it is up there with um I guess just a few places and you know, ones in the Middle East and perhaps a couple of places in China is places that the United States really needs to watch very, very closely. A lot is going on there and a, a lot is at stake for uh, American power and Western power in general. And I'm sure Charles will talk about that. So this book is uh, for the uh, New York Times reading crowd or the London Times reading crowd, something that I think that uh, it would pay you to, to uh, pick up. So that you can see, as they say on CNN or something, what's behind the headlines. Um, And there is a lot behind the headlines. It's a very rich story. So go out there and buy the book. But, uh, Charles, let's begin the interview in our traditional way by uh, you telling us a little bit about yourself.
1: Well, I'm a professor at Georgetown University. I teach in uh, a place called the School of Foreign Service, which is, uh, despite its name, uh, not a place that's intended only to train U.S. Foreign Service officers or CIA operatives. There may or may not be some of my former students in those organizations. I don't know. Um, but it is a School of International Affairs, um, a sort of broad, broad-based broad uh, undergraduate and master's level curriculum in international affairs. I also teach in the government department at, at Georgetown. So uh, by training, I guess I'm a a political scientist uh, by vocation um, and by passion, much more of a, a, a modern and contemporary historian. Um, I'm from Arkansas originally. I grew up in Arkansas on a, on a cattle farm, uh and then went to a went to the university of arkansas where i was a um a, a philosophy major uh, my father always used to ask me uh, or used to tell me i should uh, practice saying would you like fries with that um uh, because i will uh, I, would, I would need that <laughs> to apply my philosophy degree um but uh, graduated as a philosophy major and then did kind of russian studies uh on on the side as a as as a kind of minor and then and then went off to to Oxford university and uh uh you know how you're going to keep them down on the farm um went off to oxford and 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 studied uh for a, a master's degree and a doctorate in um in Russian East european studies and then a, and then in politics the doctorate in in politics and um been kind of engaged with russia and eastern europe uh ever since Uh, I I think originally the idea was, uh, you know, how could I how could I be as weird as possible uh, coming from a farm in Arkansas? And in the 1980s, you got to be weird, you know, either by joining a punk band or studying Russian, studying the communists.
0: and, uh, And I chose the latter. I did both those things in the 80s. (laughs) (laughs)
1: <laughs> <laughs> right. we, we actually yeah we will we will forget some of the things yes. the hairstyles the yeah, um, you know the the members
0: only jackets and we'll right. put that aside. i don't want to go i don't want to go back there I just, yeah, there's yeah. some pictures of me in skinny ties but i'm not going to show them anyone i, I promise they're back in they're yeah. back in oh, so them out. that's terrible so um but I, I have a sort of silly question for you and I, I think those people from the united states who listen to the show will understand it's where is i lived in arkansas for a while as i told you where's the arkansas yeah. accent what happened to it
1: you know, I think I lived in Britain for six years, and I think it, it just got somehow washed out. There, there are. Um, uh, my wife will 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 tell me, and, and in fact, she wants it to come back. Um, <laughs> there are. Which you find very charming, but there are um, there are a few things that uh, a few areas in which it still comes out. One, if I've had a bit to drink or <laughs> I'm very tired, it will come out. Uh, but also, um, my my short e's and my short eyes you get know. mixed up a, a, a lot. Um, so you know, get becomes get, yeah. um, uh-huh. and so on. And, and that that I can't control, nor do I try to control.
0: Well, for those of you who don't know, you can just listen to Bill Clinton because not only does he have one, he cultivates it.
1: I mean, yes, it's, it's, exactly it's a right. tool
0: for him. It makes him sound real folksy,
1: even though he's not. I mean, Hillary sad. Clinton used to have one. She had one when she was first lady of Arkansas, but then she became very Chicago again yeah, once she, right, um, right. you know, once she left. Well, she was always kind of well healed, as opposed. Yeah, to that's Ill, true. And yeah. now, and now, I guess, very sort of Chippewa, New York. Exactly. Is, no, is, no the, I, th- I think I think that's ex-
0: that's exactly right. She's uh, probably drinking yeah. Pims or something. I don't know what she drinks. About. <laughs> um, so, anyway, how did you uh, come to write this book?
1: Well, I had um and I have a tendency I think to write um books about uh places that people say can't have histories. Um my my first book was a uh was really a version of my doctoral dissertation. It was about sort of the controversy surrounding this uh, strange and interesting little country called Moldova, which is right on the border between Romania and Ukraine and has passed back and forth uh, over the centuries between Ottoman control, Romanian control, Russian control, Soviet control, and so on. And the the core issue in that country was and still is politically, are the Moldovans a nation uh, or not? Do they constitute a separate kind of national group? Some say they do. Others say they're, they're just Romanians uh, by a different name. And the book was really an attempt to kind of write a history of of uh, of a nation that many Romanian nationalists contend just doesn't exist at all. Uh, the next book I, I did called uh, The Black Sea a History was to try to write the history of a body of water that uh, told its story in ways other than just, you know, um, uh, sort of uh, daring do on the high seas, but really was trying to look at the history of the Black Sea and the Black Sea littoral as, as a region. Uh, people have done that for the Mediterranean before. They've done it for the Atlantic before, and now I was trying to do it for uh, for this bit of Eastern Europe, a part of the world where people often think the only things that really have histories are ethnic, ethnically defined nations. Mm-hmm. You know, the history of the Bulgarians, of the Ukrainians, of the Romanians. And I wanted to break that down and and, and use the sea uh, as a lever against that. Mm-hmm. Um, and so then, from kind of the water, I ended up going to go into the mountains. Um, the caucasus is a is a region of as you were saying you know incredible religious linguistic uh, ethnic diversity um you know, scores and scores of uh, distinct ethnic groups, many of them speaking mutually unintelligible languages from completely separate language families. It's a place where empires have met: the Russian, the Persian, the Ottoman, the Soviet. Um, it's a place where uh, religions have met: you know, Orthodox Christianity, the Armenian Apostolic tradition, um, Islam in in both its Sunni and Shia. Variants and, um, and and the, the history writing about the Caucasus has traditionally taken one of two forms. Either it's a history of Russian imperial conquest, and uh, you know Russian soldiers being killed in upland defiles by fanatical Muslims or it's really the history of ancient nations and their translation into, into modern uh, nation states, the history of the Georgian people, the history of the Armenian people, and so on. And I really wanted to write a history that was different from either of those two traditions, and again, to, to take geography seriously and to, to talk about the ways in which the mountains have been not so much a barrier uh, to the interaction of peoples and cultures, but have in fact been the very landscape on which those interactions have taken place.
0: Mm-hmm. Well, I can, if I might, just take a moment to offend all of my colleagues. Um, I can, I can say that I applaud you for trying to write trans, uh, what I would call transnational history. But it's also, uh, I, I think, it's the kind of thing that would be very extraordinarily difficult in any history program or history department because uh, we are divided nationally. So if you came to your advisor or someone came to me and said, "Yes, I want to write a history of the Caspian Sea," I'd say, "Well, you can do that, and then you'll need to learn a phrase." Mm-hmm fries with that. Um because <laughs> uh history departments, you know, they're divided up nationally and uh, it's very difficult to uh work in the spaces in between. I know a couple of people who have done it. Actually one of them's right in your area and she teaches at uh <laughs> at where does she teach? At Maryland where? Darn it! If I can remember, I think she teaches in she teaches at Baltimore, but at University of Maryland, Baltimore, I think, and she's managed to do it. Uh, there are a couple of other people, maybe, who've managed. Oh, is that to do Kate
1: it. Brown? Yeah, yeah. exactly. Uh-huh. Kate Brown is who I'm thinking of. Yeah, yeah. No, right.
0: no, yeah, exactly. Yeah. I think she's she's, she's, she's to I, mean, I think
1: yeah, yeah. I mean, I think it. it uh, I think you have to sort of define yourself, given the realities or the sociology of the history profession, and, and as you say, the way departments are divided by by you know chronology and 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 by culture in a way. Um, because I think, you know, historians kind of believe that chronology and culture just, just matter, and that's a completely honorable thing to believe. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I think so, given realities, I think people have to define themselves as being in some kind of camp, you know, mm-hmm. you're a Russianist, or East Europeanist, yeah. you're a Germanist, or whatever. But within that, I think there's a lot of scope, uh, even at the doctoral level, for for people to be very creative. I have a a doctoral student and I'm actually on his committee even though he's in the his department who's doing work on the history of disease around the black city a fundamentally transnational issue and a yep. very sad topic um, no but I think he would define himself as uh, you know as a Russianist yeah. if he were going on the job market and yeah. you know, he's worked in Ukrainian, Russian, Ottoman archives, which I think you have to do for that kind
0: of subject. That's right. Yeah, no, that's interesting. No, I mean, people do it more and more. I think the Americanists have been very successful in uh, terms of carving out a kind of international history that can uh, lead to employment, that being the Atlantic world. We talked about that on this show. There's some thematic histories, you know, the history of genocide, for example. We had a fellow on last mm-hmm. week or two weeks ago who does that, but It's really kind of sadly the case that um, we are, in history departments, still divided up into national um, sections, which isn't to say that sort of some fundamental knowledge of some nation isn't a very, very good thing to have in your pocket. Uh, But uh, I don't know. I find myself increasingly interested in what I would call transnational history, sort of moving past the nation. But, uh, you know, still, I mean, nations... Really matter a lot. I guess that sounds really banal, doesn't it? But in any event,
1: um, why don't we? Well, they. I mean, they. They. They
0: do. I mean, I think you. It, it, sort of knowledge
1: has to reside somewhere, right? And uh, and might as well reside in, in a beef in the. the causal power of time and place. Um, I think, you know, political scientists, social scientists would say the causal power of time and place <laughs> is an impure question. That is they ought to ask whether and how time and place actually matter. Whereas I think historians kind of get take it as a game, but but I think the field, you know, there's fields in in the history of, uh, of of subfields within Russian history now they are so dynamic uh, that are transnational, you know, late imperial Russian history is a magnificent field. Now Soviet cultural history has long been a very interesting field. So, uh, I think you can you can yeah. be certainly within those boundaries.
0: Yeah, no, it, it happens. While you mentioned um, place, I was very interested in the attention you pay to geography. Maybe we could actually start a discussion of the book with geography because geography was such an important part of the history of the Caucasus. It's a it's an old story, and you begin it from the beginning. Why don't you tell us about what the Caucasus is like geographically and why it is like
1: that? Well, the, the, the mountains really get all the attention, um, as perhaps they should. Uh, the Caucasus mountain range um, extends about 700 miles, though, uh, from really one peninsula to the neck from a place called the Palm Peninsula up in the northwest, which is right at the intersection or near the intersection of, of Russia and Ukraine, at uh, the uh, edge of the Black Sea, all the way down uh, in the southeast uh, to a peninsula called the Upsharon Peninsula that juts out uh, into, the, into the Caspian Sea, uh, and along this diagonal of, uh, of incredible uh, mountains, course mountainous terrain you have um some of the, the highest mountains in europe if you think of that part of the world as still being in europe um mount elbrus for example the tallest peak um geographically in europe is located in the uh, in the, the Caucasus, and there are um, you know pl- plenty of others along, especially this district called the central range right in the middle uh of, uh, of about 700 mile um long mountain chain um And, you know, you have some of these sort of great mountaineering stories and so forth from the history of alpinism uh, that take place in the the Caucasus. But the region itself, geographically, very, very diverse. Uh, On the northern slopes, you have the beginning of the Eurasian steppe, um, you know, flatlands, prairie, um, traditionally nomadic herders living there, of course, that ended about 200 years ago. And then on the southern slope, you have extremely lush uh, river valleys, Uh, you have uh, arid steppe um, in the extreme southeast, in uh, the southern part of what is now Azerbaijan, uh, you have the um, Hills and and rocky mountains, and upland Armenia, also in the, the south of the main vein of the Caucasus. So, you know, even though it's it's always described as this rugged and mountainous land, um, you know, very few people actually live at altitude, and it is uh, it, it's a part of the world where I think cultures, civilizations, and now modern politics. Politics takes place in those in those rivers and lowlands.
0: Mm -hmm. I see. So, if if somebody um, asks you the following question, if is there a place in the United States or a place in the world that people are very familiar with? I don't know Switzerland or something that would remind one, because most people have not been to the Caucasus Mountains.
1: Sure. I mean, it's, certainly, if you're in the Caucasus uplands, it looks very much like the Swiss, even though the Caucasus mountains are are taller uh-huh. um, than than the Alps. But uh, yes, yeah, certainly, granite, you know, outcroppings covered in snow, um, and pine forests a bit uh, a, a bit lower down. Uh-huh. Um, but again, if you're, um, you know, parts of it will also look like the um, the, the Great Plains of the American Midwest. Mm-hmm. Um, other parts of it will look like um, will look like parts of parts of florida you know mm-hmm. very very lush uh so it it, it isn't it's a it's an area in which uh the cultural diversity is mapped on top of uh, mm-hmm. and perhaps results in um, a, a real geographical diversity as well yeah
0: no i think that, i think that's a that's an insightful point it's one it's one i talk a little bit about in the, the write-up to, to to this particular interview uh, so uh who lives there and how did they get there that's a well, ridiculous have, question, I suppose, but try to answer it. As no, best you not, can. not uh,
1: at all. I mean, um, you know, if I were giving a, giving this as a as a as a sort of visual lecture rather rather than um, rather than a video show, um, I, I would have uh, a map that I always put up at the beginning of the lecture that that um, is it like a, a kind of um, um, like a Rorschach test, I guess, it, but it's an ethnic map the Caucasus, and it looks like has just splattered paint all over the map, and or we'll call it a Jackson Pollock uh, <laughs> uh, you know, map of the Caucasus that is meant to show us the incredible diversity of linguistic and cultural ethnic groups um, who live in, in the region. And it certainly is incredibly diverse. You have- Representatives of virtually every major Eurasian European language family, from the speakers of an Indo European language, the Armenians, who live principally in the South Caucasus, uh, in the country of, of Armenia, the independent country of Armenia. Uh, you have speakers of Turkic languages, for example, the inhabitants of, of Azerbaijan, uh, just uh, Armenia's neighbors just to the east. Um, you have speakers. Of, uh, of languages that are related to, to Persian, uh, also an Indo-European language. The Ossetians uh, of the North Caucasus and, and the South Caucasus uh, were much in the news in the summer of 2008 because of the Russia-Georgia War, which was over a piece of territory called South Ossetia. Uh, and then you have, beyond that, a whole range of uh, linguistic and ethnic groups who speak uh, Languages that have no relationship really to anything else on the planet, um, circad- so-called Circassian ethnic groups who live in the northwest part of the Caucasus, speaking of their, their own separate language unrelated to anything around it. While I back, it's related to the Abbas, but that doesn't really help us. very much. No, it doesn't. Um, Uh, Georgians, uh, you know, in the independent country of Georgia who speak their own ancient language with, like the Armenians, their own ancient alphabet, but related to Nothing else around it. Well, I should say it's related to Svan and Laz uh, and Mingrelian, but that doesn't help us very no. much. Um, and then in this mountainous territory up in northeastern Caucasus is called Lakhistan, uh, a name which, um, from the Turkic word "dag," simply means mountain or The mount, literally mountainous land or the highlands of uh, the Caucasus. Over a hundred. Um, ethnic groups in that region. 34 principal ethnic groups speaking mutually unintelligible languages. I mean, it's, it's it's an incredibly diverse part of the world. I would say though, that there are lots of other parts of the world that are just as ethnically and linguistically diverse, and it's not always mountains that are that are like that. I mean the Eurasian steppe before um, you know the the age of uh, of modern empires and sedentary populations was also amazingly ethnically diverse, even though the ethnic groups tended to be on the move mm-hmm. a lot as nomadic populations or the American great plains before mm-hmm. uh, before white settlement incredibly mm-hmm. diverse so you know, we often have this idea that mountains be uh, ethnic diversity, and and all cliches about the Caucasus is um, you know every mountain, every every valley has its own language or ethnic group, which mm-hmm. is of course an overstatement. statement. But flatlands can be just as diverse,
0: mm-hmm. and just as diverse as well. Mm-hmm. I see. So uh, we have all these ethnic groups. One of the themes uh, that you draw out in an attempt to unify or provide a unified story for the Caucasus is. The interaction between these many different peoples, and uh, specifically three empires. Why don't we talk a little bit about them? Because it is in a relatively peculiar place. Imperialist. That's
1: speaking. right. I mean, yeah. It, yeah I mean, it, it is a place that uh, you know, for the last half millennium or so, has been at the meeting place of uh, different political, social, economic, strategic systems. Um, the uh, the The Russian Empire conquered the Caucasus uh, in in a whole series of of diplomatic moves and outright wars uh, from the beginning of the 19th century uh, up to roughly the 1860s. Um, But before that, the area had sort of gone back and forth, had been, uh, point of contention between the Ottoman Turks uh, on one side, who exercised some some religious influence and some economic influence on the, the western bit of the Caucasus, the Persians, uh, who exercised some religious and economic or strategic influence on the eastern uh, Caucasus, particularly the southeast, but the east in, in general. And then uh, from the 18th century uh, forward, Culminating in this these series of diplomatic moves and wars of the early 19th century, uh, the Russian Empire coming down from the north and uh, gradually exerting power over the indigenous uh, political elites uh, that they found there in the mountains. Um, the Russian conquest, though, proceeded in in a couple of different ways, depending on kind of what the Russians found when they got there. In some places. Uh, political elites, indigenous native political elites, were extremely well established. There were ancient princely families or ancient royal families in parts of the Circassian lands in the north, in Georgia, um, in parts of Armenia. And it was possible uh, for the Russians simply to absorb those native elites into the Russian imperial system. The Russians were were very very good, much um, or very adept, I should say, uh, much more than the, than the British or the French in their overseas empires in absorbing indigenous elites um, into their imperial system. Um, the Brits, you know, sort of wanted to, wanted to to conquer them. The Russians wanted to make them nobles. Um, and uh and and sort of that was kind of uh, one kind of pattern I guess. In other areas where there were few local indigenous elites or where those elites elites were very, very divided among uh among themselves, um, Russia in, in some instances sort of invented local elites uh to uh to rule over the, the newly newly conquered Territory, sort of, taking a local chieftain and raising him up to the level of a, a level of a prince or a khan or whatever mm-hmm. local title might have been used. Um, so, in in some ways, the patterns of conquest were very very different depending on which bit of the Caucasus the Russians Russians encountered, and that set up, I think, a set of um, strategic problems for the Russian Empire over the course of the 19th
0: century. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. How did the um just as a uh, just a just a question, I guess did did the Ottomans and the, and the Persians also this would be the Safavids? Did they have any success in integrating these local elites? I mean, I'm, I I don't really know. Sure, the- I mean, de- dep- yeah, depending on the period, um,
1: the uh, particularly in the south, because um, you know, local elites were very much a part of either the Persian um, administrative political system or, to a lesser degree, the the Ottoman. Um, political administrative system. I say in the Ottoman case a lesser degree because m- the the areas of the Caucasus in which the Ottomans actually did exert influence um, in those areas that influence was by and large exerted through a middleman group, and that was a group known as the Crimean Tatars, yeah. um, the, um, the 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 rulers of uh, of that little uh, geographical appendage that sticks out into the Black Sea from the the mm-hmm. northern coast, the Crimea area. Um, In the Persian case, though, um, again, depending on the period, you have Georgian princes uh, serving the Persian Shah. You have Georgian princes dying in Persia's wars in Afghanistan. Um, So, you know, the story Georgians often now tell themselves is of this ancient Christian kingdom, and Georgians are, tradition, most Georgians are traditionally Orthodox by religion, this ancient Christian kingdom that has forever fought against uh, the nefarious Muslim. That's, of course, not true to, to historical fact because you had plenty plenty of Georgians uh, in the service to um anomaly Shia uh, ruler in, in Persia for, for centuries. What's mm-hmm. um, a kind of example of this sort of mixing of, of cultures and religions?
0: Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So, um, Is there any particular succession or order in the way in which these three empires interacted? I know that the Russians uh, had reasonably cordial relations with the the Persians for a long time, but they fought a whole series of wars over the Caucasus with the uh, Ottomans who – I don't know what it is about Ottoman history, but it's a little bit like in Western European history, the bourgeoisie is always rising, but in – in um, in right. in history, uh, the Ottomans are always falling. I don't think. I, I think that violates like the first law of thermodynamics or something. <laughs> but I aren't they always falling? Am I wrong about that? that well, you know, it's like true. they were never yeah, there. Have to, I, yeah, that is true. I mean, if you go back to the middle of the
1: 16th century, I guess things were pretty good for the Ottomans. But yeah, the Europeans. Story of the Ottomans from, you know, uh, roughly 1550 on is uh, is, a, is a story of decline. Again, I'm not sure that that's exactly true to uh, true to reality, but that's that's the European version of events. Um, I think what happens in the Caucasus uh, by the late 18th century and beginning of the 19th century is that Russia increasingly gets pulled into um, a series of conflicts on what is by that stage Russia's own southern border. Um, to a degree, Russia, under, first under Peter the Great, and then, most and more importantly, under Catherine the Great at the end of the 18th century, does have this strategic vision for itself and for its south. It wants to move against uh, an Ottoman Sultan that it, that appears increasingly weak. Ideally, it wants to gain complete control of the Black Sea and the riches that the sea and its uh, coastline provide, and perhaps in The grandest Russian vision to take control of Constantinople, put a Russian prince on the throne there, and create a revived Byzantine Orthodox Empire and drive the infidel um, Muslim Turk out. Um, Those strategic visions work in the Caucasus as well, and particularly under Catherine, Russia does begin to develop this um, almost to manifest destiny in the Caucasus region. But I think even more important than that is the degree to which the empire gets pulled into the local struggles and security problems of this borderland. Um, in the 1790s, the city of uh, Tiflis, or what we now call it to be Lisi, the capital of Georgia, is sacked uh, by the Persians, a good part of the part the city destroyed. Um, and the Georgians, looking for a protector um, against the Persians, look naturally to the north, to this uh, Orthodox Christian monarch on the throne of a power that is clearly rising um, in, uh, it, to their north, and seek protection against the Persians. Now, if it had been two centuries earlier, the Georgians might be seeking protection from the Persians against the Ottomans, but mm-hmm. time, times had changed. Um, and Russia is kind of drawn in uh, to being the protector of these uh, Orthodox Christians uh, on, the, on, on the border of, uh, of, of an Islamic empire. Uh, and that also tends to fit at the time with certain strategic visions that many many Russian political elites had, had at the time. Um, another example of the way in which Russia's sort of drawn into these conflicts almost willy-nilly goes back to the idea of Russia's sort of creating its own elites on the ground that I mentioned earlier. This is very much the case in, in parts of the North Caucasus, in the area of what we now call Chechnya, and, and the, the area of Dostan that I mentioned earlier, where social um, structure when the Russians first arrive is pretty flat. Um, you know, there are tribal chieftains, there are individual villages and clusters of villages that band together as a kind of political unit. But there's no overarching king, no overarching prince or khan. Uh, the Russians come in and realize that the way that you get influence in these societies uh, in, that are very, very flat, and, and you might say democratic with a small d, uh, is by creating uh, a system of notables and elites and then imbuing them with um, with the sort of stamp of imperial authority. Mm-hmm. The problem with that strategy is that there were always people around willing uh, to contest that, uh, to say that in fact those elites are simply stooges of the uh, of the Russians, or stooges of those stooges of those infidel Christians. Um, and by the by the 1820s and 1830s, you begin to get these uprisings in Chechnya and Dagestan against local elites who are cooperating with the Russians. The most famous of those, and it goes on for about 30 years, um, is a rebellion led by a by a man named Shamil, who is probably the most famous highland. leader Leader in the Caucasus ever, uh, he's, he's the equivalent of, uh, of of Sitting Bull or Geronimo in in American Western history, mm-hmm. legendary kind of figure, um, and he leads an uprising, not so much against the Russians but against all of these local elites who have been created by the Russians and are and are cooperating with them. Um, so again, it you know there are a whole series of stories going on, none of which I think is really about. A nation's claim to greatness, or the ancient roots of one or another culture—the normal stories that people in the Caucasus sometimes tell themselves now—but they're really a story of strategic bargains mm-hmm. uh, made and broken, and the interests of empires and locals in how they respond to uh, the designs of imperial sovereigns mm-hmm. from, from beyond the Caucasus
0: itself. Mm-hmm. I wanted to ask you a little bit about uh, something. You know, I've spent some time. I've actually never been to the Caucasus, but i spend spent uh, a lot of time in Russia and. One of the things I know from reading Russian literature and talking to Russians and things like this is there really is a an important place in the Russian uh, mind for the Caucasus. I mean, we think about and talk about Orientalism in Western and Central Europe, but Russia's Orientalism really comes from Central Asia and from the Caucasus. Uh, you know, a, a, an outstanding example of the Central Asian influence is the fact that Russians still hang carpets on their walls, I think. Yeah. Um, so and, – and this comes right from Central Asia. And, and I do wonder uh, – uh, I think the listeners might be familiar with that and uh, the fact there was an early engagement uh, in Russian literature, Russian romantic literature of the Caucasus. Uh, but uh, d- did it work the other way around? What, what influence did Russian culture have on these um, indigenous, if you want to use that term, uh, ethnic groups and cultures? This is something we don't care yeah. much about.
1: Yeah, I mean, I I, you, I think you're exactly right that they, that this was a, a two-way street. I mean, over the course of the 19th century, in particular, Russians came to imagine the Caucasus as theirs, as their territory once it was completely conquered. Um, you see, you know, echoes of that even in the Georgia-Russia War of 2008, in the way in which that was portrayed in the Russian media. Um, and but they also begin to imagine Russians begin to imagine themselves as, in part know, Caucasian in a in a regional sense. Um but, you know, hanging carpets on the wall is is a good example of that. Drinking Armenian brandy, um, yeah. going to a going to right. a Georgian restaurant, you know, plenty right. of Georgian restaurants in, in Moscow yeah. the Georgian food is our food. Um and then wearing, you know, the Cherkeska, that thing that we now think of as a kind of Cossack garment, that that long yep. male tunic, yep. um with slots on on the chest that we think looks typically Russian. That's of course a a Caucasus garment. It's called a Cherkeska from the, the word Cherkes or Circassian named after mm-hmm. the, the ethnic group of the Northwest Caucasus. So um but, but you know that process was also working in the opposite direction, so that people in the Caucasus came to think of themselves as not necessarily Russian in a kind of ethnic sense, but looked to Russia and thought of Russia as a kind of natural pole of elites and um, cultural belonging, and and, and so forth. Uh, you know, the the expansion of Russian as a kind of lingua franca across the Caucasus is you know is only about. Two hundred years old, only in historical terms. Only about two hundred years old. Before then, uh, lingua franca was was either um, a version of Turkish for much of the Caucasus, or even Arabic in parts of uh, parts of Dagestan, where that was both an administrative language as well as as a religious um, language. And so, you know, Russia's cultural influence, the Soviet cultural influence um, over the course of the twentieth century, absolutely profound, completely reshaped these societies. The interesting thing over the last 20 years as at least the South Caucasus, Georgia, Armenia, Azerbaijan have been independent from Russia, of course, no longer part of, of, of that old country, the Soviet Union. Um, the interesting thing has been the way in which they've tried to imagine their history without Russia, mm-hmm. uh, to look back to the Middle Ages or look back to the, the, the glory of Uh, A glorious era of Georgian kingdoms of the 1100s and 1200s, and sees that as the most legitimate history. The 200 years of Russian of the Russian Empire, um, Russian imperial experience in the Caucasus, as being somehow forgotten or illegitimate history.
0: Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. I see. Yeah, no, that 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 process is fascinating. It's it's ongoing in Russia as well, uh, where we see the Russians trying to uh, define themselves outside of. Uh, things like Ukraine and Belarus and, right. uh, and and the Caucasus and Central Asia and things like this. Trying to write a history that doesn't involve those places, it turns out to be a kind of a tricky thing to do because uh, it often runs up against the yeah. facts, which you know doesn't um, doesn't deter everyone. Which it should deter us as professionals, but it doesn't deter everyone. I want to talk a little bit about uh, a couple of special relationships, uh, actually three. Um, and the first is between uh, – at least what I perceive to be special relationships in that kind of airy, fairy way. Americans talk about the special relationship between uh, Russia and Britain. And all my uh, British friends think that it's a it's a load of shite. But uh, <laughs> the, um, <laughs> the Americans have this thing in their head. So the first one – actually the three of them, and one is Russia and Georgia uh, that I perceive. Another one is between uh, uh, – perjury or Iran and Azerbaijan and then the third and most problematic of them is between uh, Turkey and Armenia why don't we start with the third one maybe you could just tell us a little bit about that relationship and how it uh, really went horribly sour and what it's like today
1: well, this is sort of much in the much in the news because we're now in the the season in which the U.S. Congress, um, every year, every spring, uh, debates whether to pass a, a joint resolution of Congress recognizing um, the Armenian genocide of, of 1915, and you know, all the newspapers, at least here in Washington, are are full of um, full full of news about this. Now it's in the run up to to April 24th, which is the the year in which the or the, day, the date on which the uh, genocide is commemorated each year. Um, the The Armenian-Turkish relationship is is one of those in which, as as you put it, I think exactly rightly, it it went sour, which you know implies that it was it was much better at at one point in time. It was, in so far as Armenians lived uh, for centuries within the Ottoman Empire. Um, uh, Really, quite successfully. Um, some of them, you know, moving to the absolute top of the uh, of the Ottoman imperial system. The Armenians were also no, uh, always known as the as the most loyal millet or the most loyal mm-hmm. constituent group or, or nation within the within the Ottoman Empire. Um, Things began to go very sour um, at the at the end uh, end of the 19th century for for a couple of different reasons. One, as the Ottoman Empire itself was weakening, uh, Russia once again sought to take advantage of that and supported um, nationalists within the Armenian community, principally in the diaspora or living inside the Russian Empire in what is now the country of Armenia, supporting their territorial claims or the eastern bit um, of, of of the Ottoman uh, of the Ottoman. Region in in eastern Anatolia, where there were um, you know large numbers of, of, of local Armenians uh, living, um, you get the rise of bandit groups, you get the rise of guerrilla formations. Uh, many of them supported or financed, uh, outfitted by by the by the Russians from the uh, from the 1880s and 1890s forward. That accelerates over the course of the of the First World War, when of course the Ottomans and Russia were on were on different sides of that. Conflict: Russians invade Eastern Anatolia and take control of a good bit of the territory, in which uh, for, for part of the war, in which um, local Armenians uh, had been, had been settled for 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 millennia. Um, and the Ottoman response to that is uh, to see the Armenians uh, no longer as the most loyal constituent of the Ottoman state, but rather as the, as a threat. Uh, to the Ottoman state and uh principally in in 1915 1915 is the year in which Ottoman intellect or uh, well, Armenian intellectuals in in, um, in Istanbul were many of them were rounded up and uh, and and either deported or executed by the Ottoman state uh, but throughout that 1890s early 20th century throughout the period of the of the uh, first world war all the way up through the early 1920s a series of rolling deportations of Armenians from um from the eastern uh, bit of the empire Right on the border between Anatolia, the, the core constituent of modern Turkey, and uh, and and the Caucasus, and those deportations lead to um, hundreds of thousands of deaths. The numbers of uh, I think will never really be known. Somewhere between eight thousand and a million and a half uh, Armenians die uh, in that process. Uh, for Armenians now. Um particularly in the Armenian diaspora, this memory of this horrific uh, set of events is the is the critical, traumatic experience of the Armenian nation in the 20th century uh, for many. Uh, for many Turks, they will say, as horrible as these things were, plenty of Muslims died in these conflicts as, as well. Not only in Anatolia, but look at the death of Muslims and the deportation of Muslims from the Balkans, uh, which was one of the mm-hmm. things that, in fact, you know, created a modern country that we call Turkey, that is in large part a Muslim Muslim society. It's those deportees and immigrants uh, who contributed to the creation of the modern Turkish state. So you have, you know, deep visions to historical memory, all of these issues terribly politicized now um i, I have no trouble using the term Armenian genocide i mean to my mind by by really any standards of of, of genocide today um, I think what happened the at the uh, end of the uh, end of the nineteenth century and, and first two decades of the twentieth century uh, should count um under that label, but I also realize that there is a great deal of um of uh, you know alchemy going on when it comes to how how historical memories get interpreted and and, and changed over time. There's not the one answer um, to, to this uh-huh. question. And so you know when now people ask, was it a genocide? Was it not a genocide? I don't I I don't think there's um uh, there's one easy answer to that question. I use the term analytically, mm-hmm. um but but it's terribly politicized as well.
0: Yeah, if you're going to sit down with an uh, Armenian and a uh, a Turk, I think. Um, the question of genocide would be what they call in negotiations a non-starter that, yeah, that would that, that end exactly things right, right there there would be no more there would be no more discussion about uh, basically anything it is fascinating so in a parallel kind of way the russians have uh, fallen out with the georgians recently and I, and I know a little bit about this history they were um, to use a colloquial phrase buddy buddy for a very long time and uh, now that too seems to have soured maybe you could tell us that story
1: it, well, exactly right. I mean, I, it, it is—it's not comfortable for many Georgians um, uh, to admit these days. But I think Georgians and Russians were um, were the sort of conquerors of the Caucasus, uh, if, if you like. Um, Georgians were a part of the, the Russian imperial um, system from from eighteen oh one forward. Um, the Georgian nobility was absorbed into the Russian system of noble ranks, and Georgians moved to the absolute top of the Russian uh, imperial structure. Um, you know, serving as, uh, as as generals, serving as uh, as, as um, uh, fighters on the front lines uh, with uh, Caucasus Highlanders and so on. So, mm-hmm. and, and then of course Tiflis, the city of Tbilisi, became the Russian imperial center. Mm-hmm. Uh, from uh, throughout the 19th uh, throughout the 19th century <laughs> the kind of jewel in the crown uh for for the russians in the south caucasus um and then of course during during the soviet period georgians uh, play i think a, a disproportionately powerful role in the um, in even in the soviet system uh characters like Lavrentiy beria uh, or of course joseph stalin himself who was uh, mm-hmm. who who were both georgians um uh, were 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 uh, you know responsible for uh, the way in which the Caucasus was it was administered during the during the Soviet era. Um and I think also at a kind of cultural level, you know the, 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 the jo- Georgians became um, the kind of Sicilians of, uh, of, of the, the Russian and Soviet system. That is, people who are a little bit foreign, but you love them for it. Yeah. Um, you know, They're the ones who know how to drink well, who know how to eat well, they know how to laugh well. Um, and even though they're not Russians, um, they, uh, they're, they're you know, your first cousin in a way, at least in terms of sensibility. Um, but I think there was always a kind of, you know, always a kind of tension. Uh, there because there is a cultural divide uh, between these peoples they 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 they're not from the same linguistic um, background um, they they are um, you know neighbors um, maybe even first cousins but not really brothers um, and uh, even though both are traditionally Orthodox uh, by by religion the Georgians have jealously guarded their own cultural religious uh, and historical traditions um, and very, very have guarded those very very Um, Georgia for example along with Armenia were the only two republics in the Soviet Union that had an official language that wasn't Russian Uh, Georgians and Armenians were allowed to keep Georgian and Armenian as their official languages which is why even during the Soviet period, rates of absolute assimilation to Russian were, were relatively low in those places, and why now um, it's still it, you know it's increasingly rare to find any younger people in in Georgia, in particular, who um, who have a very good knowledge of Russian at all. It, English would now be the, the second language of choice, mm-hmm. um, and I think then over the last twenty years, a lot of these sort of points of tension became outright points of points of conflict. Um, over a couple of territorial issues a place called South Ossetia and a place called Abkhazia in Georgia which sought independence uh, from Georgia in the early 1990s and the Georgians and and, uh, the Russian Federation have been at odds over those two districts uh, for for some time and uh, then of course really since 2003 uh, as georgia uh, uh, had a, had what was at the time called a, a rose revolution in which the the old communist party apparatchik edward shernadze was ousted as as president of georgia uh, he himself was uh, was very pro-Russian, at least at least in the kind of cultural orientation. He had been, after all, the, uh, the foreign minister of, of the Soviet Union back in the day. Mm-hmm. Uh, he was ousted in favor of a much younger, American-educated, English-speaking um, politician um, named Mikhail Saakashvili. Mm-hmm. And Saakashvili you know, steer Georgia on a very clear course toward the West, uh, toward membership in NATO, which is something Tucker should be very much desired. Which is uh, something that you know strategists, particularly on the right in the United States, very much desired because it was seen as a scotch against. Um, against Russian neo-imperial uh, ambitions in the Caucasus. And that uh, that tension, I think, then came to a head with the Russia-Georgia war in 2008.
0: Mm-hmm. I see. So let's move on very quickly to, because uh, I want to save time to talk about the very recent conflicts. Let's move on to the relationship between Azerbaijan and Persia. Can you tell us a little bit about that? Yeah,
1: I mean, th- this again is, is one of those um, long standing cultural connections that is really not mirrored, I think, in contemporary political uh, ways. But uh, Azerbaijanis are traditionally um, uh, of, of Shia Islam heritage, just like uh, uh, Iranians or, or Persians. Um, much of the sort of food ways and local folk culture. Um, in Azerbaijan itself, uh, would not be unfamiliar uh, to to many Persians. Even though the, uh, the even though the Azer- Azerbaijanis speak a Turkic language, is very close to modern Turkish. Uh, while, of course, the the, the, the Persians uh, uh, traditionally speak uh, speak uh, Farsi or uh, or or another um, uh, variety of, of that Indo-European language. Um, It's also the case that uh, today there are more Azerbaijanis, if we can use that term, that is, uh, Turkic-speaking Muslims of Shia religious background living in Iran than live in Azerbaijan. So there's a very powerful ethnic connection across that border.
0: Mm -hmm. Yeah. And uh, how has that manifested itself in contemporary politics? Are they friendly now, the Azeris and the Iranians, or...? Well, they certainly they certainly get along, but
1: the, the twist in the story is that it turns out that the the really friendly relationship with Iran in South Caucasus is, is actually coming from Armenia. Mm-hmm. Um, Armenians have a long, even though they're traditionally Apostolic Christian by religion, have had a long cultural connection um, with with Iran, um, and because of the strategic games that get play in South. Caucuses. The, the the powerful relationship is now the Armenian-Iranian one. Azerbaijanis uh, Azerbaijanis and Armenians have been at odds over a territorial dispute since the late 1980s, and uh, and so uh, it, it's been difficult, I think, for Azerbaijanis and the the Iranians to um, uh, to become very friendly, mm-hmm. so long as Iran has been supporting Armenia. So you you very very complex um, strategic and and, and diplomatic relations in that part of the world that, that mirror in some ways um, the, uh, the the complexities of, of culture and ethnicity
0: yeah let me just uh, uh, ask a very open-ended question uh, what about all that oil mm. how does that play into it? Well, it plays in. There's
1: an interesting piece I think in the Washington Post or New York Times today um, about the um, the the 40 million dollars in property that the uh, president's family of Azerbaijan now owns in Dubai, including um, a, a whole set of condos owned by the 11-year-old son of the <laughs> Azerbaijani uh, president, you know.
0: Do you think he has to, as, as I have a couple of young kids at home, do you think he has to clean up after himself in those places? Yeah, well, I, the guy's got <laughs> a lot
1: of toys, <laughs> yeah. and so he needs an offshore um, storage facility <laughs> for those toys. You know, Azerbaijan is, is really the only place in the Caucasus with significant oil. There's some oil reserves in Chechnya of all places, but it's really the the, the oil and gas coming from Azerbaijan has been the principal focus of, um, of talk about oil politics in the Caucasus over the last 20 years or so. Um, it, it means that you know Azerbaijan itself has a great deal of pull. I think in regional politics and a great, has given a great deal of leeway uh, from European powers and and the United States on some basic issues like democracy and human rights. No one believes that Azerbaijan is anything close to a democracy. No one believes that they respect basic human uh, human rights. You really need to be an opposition politician in Azerbaijan to, to understand that. But it's um, but it's the power of uh, that that. That they have wielded uh, in international market uh, has been perhaps disproportionate to their size or their strategic importance simply because of the of of, of oil that's, uh, that's available there. I will say the the other thing that has been in in favor of Georgia and Azerbaijan over the the last couple of decades, over the last decade in particular. Um, Because many Americans often wonder, you know, why do we care about Azerbaijan? I get the oil, but you know, what what else is there? Why do we care about this tiny little country called Georgia? You know, fewer than 5 million people, who cares? Um, One of the the key issues um, under the last administration, and even under the Obama administration, is is actually overflight rights. Mm -hmm. Um, The ability of of American military aircraft to, uh, to get get to uh, Central Asia and, and Afghanistan um, by flying through Georgian and Azerbaijani airspace. Mm-hmm. So once again, um, you know, strategy uh, strategy comes to bear here.
0: Mm-hmm. No, it's, it's very interesting. And then there's the whole issue of where to put the pipelines. We won't go into that right now. It's very complicated. I have a friend in the State Department who I think is uh, compelled to uh, spend all of his time thinking about that. I don't envy him.
1: <laughs> that, that, that's right. Pipeline, pipeline politics. I, I think you know it's incredibly important. Can be very, very, very boring, um, but it is a it is a critical part of the way in which this uh, in which the talks is knit together and um, and and tied to um, Western security and energy.
0: Yeah, I wanted to, I wanted to um, sort of close by t- talking about three moments in which this system, such as it is, uh, felt a sort of external punch or perturbation, as the physicists like to say. And those three moments are and I just wanted you to characterize how things fell out or shook up. Uh, and the first one was um, the Bolshevik Revolution itself and then the incorporation of these areas into the Soviet Union. And the second one is uh, World War II, which uh, is a very complicated thing. I never really know what to say about what happened in the Caucasus in World War II, particularly about the um, the exile of the Chechens, I think it is. That's a very odd episode. And then, of course, there's the follow-up the, 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 the the falling apart of the Soviet Union and the wars that resulted from that. So why don't we begin just with a very brief characterization of what happens uh, after the Bolshevik Revolution and how these areas were uh, incorporated into the Soviet Union.
1: Yes, I mean the you know the, we think that the Bolshevik Revolution was one kind of event and suddenly everything changed, but of course that w- wasn't the way it worked out on on the ground. Um, the 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 coming to power of the, of the Bolsheviks in in Russia itself, or at least in the Russian of the old Russian imperial capitals, um, didn't have much effect on the Caucasus immediately, um, except uh, that it prevented any attempt by local uh, political. Figures in the Caucasus from staying together with something that might have been a, you know, a, a Russian republic or a Russian liberal or democratic republic, which of course was uh, was destroyed once the, the 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 Bolsheviks staged their coup and then 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 come to power. Um, in response to that, the uh, in the South Caucasus and a agree in the North Caucasus, local political elites create their own republics. And so from 1918 uh, to 1920, depending on the area that we're talking about, you have independent states um, in the Caucasus. There's an independent Georgian democratic republic, an independent Armenia, and an independent Azerbaijan. The first experience of these places with actual Self-governance. By 1921, all of those places that have been have been conquered by the Bolsheviks at the end of the Russian Civil War, and then they become part of the Soviet Union. But mm-hmm. um, I, in the book, I tell the story of what happened to those local politicians, you know, Mensheviks and others who uh, who created these kind of phantom republics, and then where they went afterwards. Very interesting story. Many of them end up in in Paris, going to cocktail parties, uh, trying to buttonhole people and, and 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 call for you know a Western invasion uh, to liberate the the, the Georgians.
0: Mm-hmm. And then there was a Transcaucasia for a while, wasn't there? I'm sorry, I just can't ruin as part of the book. And-
1: that's right. Very, very, well, very briefly there was one that was created um, right at, right after the Bolshevik Revolution that didn't last very long. It was an effort by the Azerbaijanis Uz- and Armenians to kind of cooperate, didn't last. And then there's a, a trans um, Republic that's created after 1921 by the Bolsheviks, but mm-hmm. that eventually gives way to these independent and the Soviet republics of mm-hmm. Georgia.
0: Argentina. So let's go on then to talk about World War II, and this is something I, I, I really always confuses me. So the the Germans in nineteen forty, the end of forty two, is it forty three? Uh, make it all the way to the mm-hmm. Caucasus, and uh, then something happens. Uh, that well, they don't uh, stay there very long, um, mm-hmm. but uh, something happens, and it, it, it that's is, right. not, it, the, is uh, it is not the, to the benefit the, of, of several of these peoples.
1: That that's that's exactly right. I mean the Germans along with. Um, Many of their allies, including the Romanians, um, make it all the way to the Caucasus. And in fact, if you talk with older people in the North Caucasus now, they will remember, you know, Romanian soldiers and so on who who came through their village. Um, then it tends to be Romanians rather than Germans whom they they who remember. Um, but the, um, the the Germans certainly make it there. They make it to the. They, they never really managed to cross the Caucasus to the south. That was their strategic aim to grab those oil facilities uh, in in Azerbaijan. That never really happens, primarily because of the defeat at Stalingrad. Uh, after which, of course, the German armies are, are pushed back to the to the west. Um, but because the armies made it that far, because you actually had the memory of these independent republics that had existed. Um, before uh, before the Bolshevik Revolution, or or at least a, a sort of flirtation with independence in the North Caucasus before the Bolshevik Revolution, many of the ethnic groups in that region come under the suspicion of Stalin and Beria and other other Soviet leaders, and several ethnic groups are deported in part or wholesale um, in 1943 and 1944 by by the Soviet authorities as. Punishment for their alleged collaboration with with the Nazis. Um, the most spectacular and most horrific, I suppose of those um, of those deportations, uh, affects the Chechens. When virtually the entirety uh, of the ethnic Chechen population in, uh, in in what we now call Chechnya is deported uh, to Kazakhstan and other parts of, of Central Asia, and spends um, you know fifteen or twenty years in exile. It's not until the end of the nineteen fifties some of the Chechens are allowed to to, to come back to their native republic. Um, And it's that traumatic experience of exile that becomes, by the 19. 90s, one of the things, one of the chief grievances, one of the chief beefs that the the, the Chechen nation has against the, the Russian. Interestingly, the uh, the first um, you know independent president of Chechen the leader of the Chechen uprising, Dudaev, uh was actually born um, in in exile. Uh, mm-hmm. So that's a very visceral reality to many Chechens. Yeah,
0: that's very it's very interesting, and I think it's forgotten. But uh, let's actually go to that third perturbation, and that is the destruction of the Soviet Union, and then the fallout that follows. Which turns out to be, I mean, we think of, we, I don't know who we is, but I tend to think of the collapse of the Soviet Union as remarkably peaceful, at least peaceful uh, in the sense that I I did expect more conflict than there was. Um, But in fact, it wasn't hardly conflict free in this area of the world. Maybe you can talk a little bit about that.
1: That's right. I mean, it it was, by and large, a peaceful affair. Some of the great conflicts one might have expected, you know, the great Russia-Ukraine war, um, uh, thankfully, never took place. Um, But the Caucasus was, by far, the most violent um, uh, region uh, during during the Soviet breakup. You had a whole series of, of small territorial wars that took place, basically over the question of who gets to be independent. Um, the uh, the Caucasus was divided not only into a series of Soviet republics, Georgia, Armenia, and so on, but those republics in turn were often subdivided into local autonomous republics or autonomous provinces, places called Abkhazia and South Ossetia and Nagorno-Karabakh, um, each themselves having their own kind of ethnic minority or ethnic designation with their own grievances against uh, Georgians, against Azerbaijanis, or whatever uh, republic they happen to live in. When those republics started declaring independence from the Soviet Union, those autonomous provinces and regions within the republic said, that's fine, we're going to declare independence from you too. Uh, So you had this whole series of cascading demands for independence wrapped up to a degree in uh, Russia's desire to retain some kind of influence in the crumbling uh, Caucasus, and uh, and the result in the in the late 80s and early 1990s uh, was a series of, of really brutal uh, territorial wars in places that are generally forgotten by all but a small handful of specialists, mm-hmm. um, with the exception of course of, of, of Chechnya, the, the one territorial conflict inside Russia itself uh, that, that garnered a great deal of attention over the 19, 1990s. Two very, very brutal wars uh, that the Russians fought there and uh, wound down the last one, um, the second Chechen War, only last year.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, they, they were remarkably brutal. I remember them well. Let's put aside the uh, um, war over Nagorno-Karabakh uh, and let's put aside for a second the, uh, the Chechen War and talk a little bit about uh, what I think is in many ways the sort of most interesting and that is uh, precisely because of the long-standing relationship between Georgia and, and Russia and that is the Georgian... Wars uh, uh, over or concerning, or um, I don't know exactly what um, preposition to use there, uh, um, over Abkhazia and Assetia. Can you just talk a little bit about those?
1: Yeah, so this is, again, um, an example of those those cascading independence demands. In the very early 1990s, uh, two autonomous regions of Georgia, Abkhazia up in the northwest and South Ossetia in north-central Georgia, declared independence from Georgia um, not long after Georgia had declared independence from this crumbling country called the Soviet Union. Um, At that stage... There, were, there was a great deal of support for Abkhaz and South Ossetian independence coming from just on the other side of the mountains from the Circassians who were kind of cousins of the Abkhaz, from the North Ossetians who were the brothers of the South Ossetians living just on the other side of what had now become this international border between Russia and Georgia. Um, local Russian soldiers who were still stationed in Georgia at that time tended to side with the secessionists. They viewed the Georgians as being sort of overbearing, even genocidal. Fanatics who were uh, intent on wiping out the Abkhaz as a people and wiping out the Ossetians as a people—that was at least their, their perspective at the time—and with Russian assistance, those secessionist entities essentially defeated the Georgian military, um, creating by nine. 19- 1993, a kind of de facto independent status of these tiny places, Abkhazia, South Ossetia. Abkhazia had about 150,000 people in it by the end of the war. South Ossetia had about 60,000, 70,000 people in it by the end of the war. Um, And that was the situation all the way up to the summer of 2008. Um, Georgians kept trying to negotiate. The international community created all these mechanisms through the UN and the and other international bodies to try to get these territorial conflicts resolved. But the secessionists had won on the battlefield, and of course they weren't going to back down on what they perceived as their hard hard, hard one. independence. Um, independence is also extremely good if you want to engage in illicit crime, uh, <laughs> illicit trade and crime and so on. And plenty of that was going on in Abkhazia and South Ossetia, you know, human trafficking, hazelnut trafficking, um, uh, you know, copper wire trafficking, arms, you, you name it, uh, stuff was coming through those, those black holes. Um, Georgia, in the summer of 2008... Um, from the Georgian perspective, responding to a lot of provocations from the South Ossetians, decided to try to solve this by military force, to sort of rush into South Ossetia, grab control of the capital, and create um, a kind of fait accompli before either the South Ossetians or their Russian backers could respond. Um, that was a great plan for about 12 hours. <laughs> And then after that, it all it all went south. Um, and so for the for the next four and a half days, uh, Russia was really sent packing as Russia invaded what everyone realized was Russian territory in South Ossetia, assisted the South Ossetians and pushing the Georgians back. And then uh, the Georgians never managed to rush into Abkhazia, but Russia beefed up its um, its uh, military. A representation in, in, in Abkhazia as well. Uh, and then not long after the defeat of Georgia in the second South Ossetian war, uh, Russia recognized uh, Abkhazia and South Ossetia as independent. Uh, so now there's a great deal of controversy about how to move forward. Russia, um, along with Venezuela and Nicaragua, um, you know, Daniel Ortega <laughs> kind of back on the scene, um, Abkhazia and South Ossetia are now recognized by, you know, at least 3 countries in yeah. the world as independent and there's an Abkhaz, you know, um, uh representation in Managua these days, I guess. Um and, and uh, so now it's a real conundrum, you know. Uh how how do you actually how do you actually uh proceed on this? Um it has some parallels of, of some parallels, I suppose, with with Kosovo, uh, where the United States was very intent on getting countries to recognize Kosovo. Plenty of members of the European Union have not recognized Kosovo, but uh, the United States and many of its friends and allies have. So you've got you've got still this uncertain status.
0: Yeah, I don't know. I, I look at these things, and I guess one shouldn't say this, but. Uh... But what the hell? You know, I say kind of a plague on all their houses because there really are no good guys here. I mean, I know I I studied the uh, nagorno karabakh war uh, pretty intensively. I didn't follow this one as much. But, you know, they're really – it's hard to find people acting well anywhere in any of this uh, business, at least as far as I could tell. And then the most um, bizarre part about it was the sudden and – and I know we're almost out of time, but I want to hear you say a few things about this because I imagine it will be very enlightening – the sudden and newfound friendship between the – People of Georgia and the people of the United States. I had no, you know, no, I think it, most people of the United States didn't even know where Georgia was. They thought it was a southern state. I, but well, so, you know, it, <laughs> you know it, it,
1: exactly, exactly right. And sort of, you know, the Ray Charles thing about that. But um, no, this, this is. A, a, it is it is bizarre i think to too many americans and uh, when when dick cheney during you know the, the um was it john McCain? i can't remember it was john McCain. 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 I think McCain there are during the last of president McCain in in uh, yeah in who Tamizia. said you know we are all we're all georgians now there's actually a george <laughs> w bush there's a, a george w bush uh um highway that leads from the airport to downtown to uh, it's probably it's probably the only place named for george w bush in yeah, the world right, um, yeah. outside of dallas um but no, it, it it is very bizarre, and and I think that because Georgia was portrayed in the United States as this. Um, you know, uh, honorable flea standing up to the great uh, Russian bear uh, that played very, very well in the United States initially. In the last year or so, um, I think we've come to understand the origins of the 2008 war in a much more nuanced way, um, the craziness of the Georgian government in launching uh, this full-scale attack on South, a- South Ossetia. But you're right; there, there, nobody emerges from any of these conflicts uh, with anything other than than blood on their hands, and that's a great tragedy of this part of the world over the last 20 years.
0: It really is. Well, I can say this. Uh, We understand all these things better because of uh, people like you. And you in particular. You. So I would like to thank you very much for writing this book. And, you know, we've taken up a huge amount of your time. And I'm sorry about that. We're already, I can see by my clock, six minutes over. Uh, and your time is very valuable. What do you bill out at? About you know, $300 an hour? No. It's, uh, yeah, yeah. yeah. So <laughs>
1: I'll, yeah, I'll send you the bill. Yeah, yeah I have these corporate. Thank you so much for having me. On, uh, yeah. uh, no, it's, it's really been
0: great. Absolutely great. Let me ask you one final question, though. What are you working on now? What is your next project?
1: So the next project is uh, is, is a book about the city of Odessa. Um, in in Ukraine, one of the, the one of Europe's great uh, Jewish cities, um, about a third Jewish by the 1940s in this magnificent center of Jewish art, culture, literature, and so on, that is then destroyed, or at least the community is is is, is destroyed during during the Holocaust. And so I'm sort of telling the story of, of the rise and fall of this of this quite magnificent um, magnificent city. And will be out in January of twenty eleven. It's called Odessa: Genius and Death in a City. Dreams.
0: That's amazing because, you know, I, I really do believe it will be out in January of 2011, knowing how hard you work. I, you know, Thank you. like Thank I, you. I say, I'm going to, I'm going to buy stock in you and Oxford University Press because, uh, great. <laughs> right. Thank because you. This is coming out with, real. I should say, this is with W.W. Norton. Oh, okay. Uh, the, All right. The, well, I'm sorry about that. Sorry, Susan Ferber. If you're <laughs> listening, I <laughs> let that one slip through your fingers. You get him to write another one. Okay. That'd be great. Well, anyway, I should tell our listeners that we've been talking and very enjoyably to Charles King about his new book, the ghost of freedom, a history of the Caucasus, which is terrific. And I encourage you to go out and buy Charles. Thanks very much for speaking with us today. Thank you
1: very much. It's been delightful. All
0: right. Bye-bye. Bye. Bye. You've been listening to an interview with Charles King, the author of The Ghost of Freedom, A History of the Caucasus. I'm Marshall Poe, the host of New Books in History. I hope you have a great week.